0: and disturbing behaviors. This week's podcast will be on H. H. Holmes. Herman Webster Mudgett was born on May 16, 1861 in Gilmanton, New Hampshire. And as we usually do, let's get into some history at that time. So 1861 was truly a very interesting time in history indeed. Earlier that year, the Confederate States of America was formed with Jefferson Davis as the president. Jefferson was a graduate of the prestigious West Point and was also a former U.S. Army officer. The next month, Abraham Lincoln was sworn in as the 16th president of the United States of America. Five weeks after, the Civil War would officially begin. At 4.30 a.m., General Pierre Beauregard ordered the Confederates to fire 50 cannons at Fort Sumter in South Carolina. The fort was captured and showed heavy damage. The flag that was seen flying was the Rebel Stars and Bars flag. Three days later, President Lincoln called for 75,000 militiamen and summoned a special session of Congress. Robert E. Lee, on that same day, was offered command of the Union Army, but he declined. He was the son of a Revolutionary War hero and a 25-year Distinguished Veteran of the U.S. Army. He would go on to say, "...I cannot raise my hand against my birthplace, my home, my children." but he did travel to Virginia and accepted the offer to command the military and naval forces there. Now, up till 1861, whale oil had been the primary fuel for lamps, but this year, Pennsylvania had an oil well that began producing more than 3,000 barrels of crude oil a day, thus the beginning of oil refining, producing an alternative fuel for lamps. This thankfully contributed to the decline in whale hunting. In Germany, factory workers who were making mirrors began having their teeth literally fall out. After an investigation, it was determined that they all had mercury poisoning. This led to government regulations requiring changes in how mirrors were made. The then-Chinese Emperor had been living a life of excess, including drugs, and he died this year at the age of 30. One of his sons that he had had with one of his, quote, consorts took the throne. This is also the year that Great Britain put together a commission to investigate child labor in the non-textile industries due to occupational disease being discovered. Back in the United States, the telegraph finally connected the West Coast to the East Coast and it was a communications marvel, but also brought an end to the Pony Express. As for the cost of living, rice was 7 cents a pound, sugar was just 8 cents a pound, beef was 11 cents a pound, and cheese was a whopping 13 cents a pound. Rent for a four room house was between four to five dollars a month, and if you wanted to buy some land, it was anywhere from three to five dollars an acre. And for a comparison, which varies a lot depending on where you live, it now costs anywhere between two to seven thousand dollars an acre. And thankfully, home canning jars had finally been invented. The overall population of the United States was then 31 million people. So this was the atmosphere that Herman was born into. His parents were Levi and Theodate and I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly. Levi was born in November 1827 in New Hampshire. He was born into a farming family that was actually pretty well off. And he joined that community as a farmer when he was grown, but also did odd jobs like house painting and so on. Theodate Page Price was born in October 1827, also in New Hampshire. She had been a school teacher before she got married and was described as cold and distant who hid behind religion to justify her beliefs and behaviors. Herman was the middle of five children, his oldest sibling being Ellen, then his older brother Arthur. And then after him were his younger brother, Henry, and finally his baby sister, Mary. And the children's births were actually spread out quite a bit. Ellen was born when their father was 24, whereas the baby, Mary, was born when he was 43 years old. And as I said, Herman was born into an upper-middle-class, pretty affluent family in Gilmanton which was then a very small, isolated town about 20 miles north of Concord. His family was financially comfortable, but behind closed doors. His father was an alcoholic, and his mother was a deeply religious woman who Bible scripture to him incessantly. And, as we all know, discipline back then was nearly always spanking or smacking your kids around, and his parents were no exception. They were reported to be quite strict. It has also been said that if he and his siblings misbehaved, their father would beat them and lock them in the attic, because both parents demanded total and complete obedience from their children. So before we continue, even though his name is actually Herman, I'm going to refer to him as just Holmes to save on confusion. Now it has been said that if the children cried during discipline, Levi was known to put a rag soaked in kerosene to quote, quiet them. The children were also deprived of food if they acted up. Now, Holmes was described as a mama's boy, always wanting to be with his mother, but he was also quite content with reading books by himself, and his favorite authors were Edgar Allan Poe as well as Jules Verne. He was also said to be a bit of an inventor. In his early school years at Gilmanton Academy, he was described as incredibly intelligent, but small for his age, and he was also considered odd. There is a story that, on the walk to school, Holmes would have to pass by a doctor's office in their village, and the doctor didn't bother to lock the door. Now, little Holmes was scared of the doctor, and the other kids found out about it so they drug him into that office kicking and screaming and forced him to stand face to face with a full medical skeleton and some sources say they put the skeleton's hands flat on his face holmes would later say quote, it was a wicked and dangerous thing to do to a child of tender years and health but it proved a heroic method of treatment destined ultimately to cure me of my fears and to inculcate in me first a strong feeling of curiosity and later a desire to learn which resulted years afterwards in my adopting medicine as a profession." He was bullied by the other kids pretty badly, but after this incident he did become interested in the medical field and human anatomy. He absorbed the information out of as many books as he could get his hands on and would even sit and talk with his teachers about it. And this would be the beginning of Holmes showing signs of what he would later become. He also began dissecting dead animals to learn their anatomy or performing surgery on them. But that hobby turned into dissecting and performing surgery on living animals. And while he was still a young boy, he and his only friend were said to have been playing together in an abandoned building when his friend fell from a higher floor and died. Rumor is... Holmes pushed his friend, but of course there's no proof of that. Little known fact, Holmes also had what is known or commonly called a lazy eye, which didn't help with him being bullied either. A lazy eye is actually called amblyopia and is generally an early childhood condition where a child's brain sort of focuses on one eye, basically ignoring the other. If that eye is not stimulated properly, the nerve cells within that are responsible for being able to see out of that eye will not mature normally. The eye itself is perfectly normal, but this condition causes blurred vision and poor depth perception. The sooner the treatment, the better the outcome. But back then, there was a superstition about this condition. Supposedly, big air quotes you can't see, having a lazy eye meant that you were a witch and therefore it was a sign of being in league with the devil. Another version of this superstition was that the person was of a quote criminal mind. So the town, and more specifically other kids, liked to tease and make fun of him for that. And to be fair, Holmes did begin to have a bit of a criminal mind. Before he even graduated high school, he was already committing forgery and fraud, including apparently a cure for alcoholism, real estate scams, and supposedly invented a machine that could make natural gas from pure water. By 1878, Holmes was 17 years old. He went with his father to help do some work for a wealthy farmer in a nearby town. This is where he met Clara Loverling, the farmer's daughter, and he was immediately drawn to her. They decided to get married. He then graduated from high school. So that was Holmes's childhood. So let's unpack it. By all accounts, he came from a fairly wealthy family and he went to a good school. His mother was overly religious, much like Ed Gein's mother was, which can pose problems for children if it's taken past a certain point. But back then, most people were fairly devoutly religious, they never skipped church and so on. So it is reasonable to assume that he watched the society around him behave and live at least in a similar fashion, so chances are he might not have thought much of that aspect. He was considered a mama's boy, but none of the sources I found blatantly called much of any attention to it, not like Ed Gein as I mentioned. Noted, but not necessarily abnormally so, compared to a lot of children that just naturally have a preference for one parent over the other. But then again... It's no wonder he was closer with his mother if the stories of his father's manner of discipline are to be believed. So having a cloth soaked in kerosene held over your mouth and nose would most likely lead to poisoning. The airway and lungs become irritated, breathing becomes difficult, and the throat can swell. This, in turn, is painful It can lead to vision loss. Low blood pressure develops rapidly. The person would most likely collapse. They could go into convulsions or feel euphoria, like being drunk. Please don't do this, FYI. The person would become unconscious, have seizures, feel very weak. Later symptoms include depression, chronic headaches, abdominal pain, bloody bowel movements, burns in the esophagus, and throwing up blood. So how well a person can get over the effects of kerosene poisoning depends completely on how much they were exposed to and for how long. If any liquid kerosene gets into the lungs, then serious and permanent lung damage can happen. I mean this is not a joke. And he was also bullied by the other kids and we've gone over plenty of information on how bullying affects children. I mean it's just not good. Add in that he was terrified of the doctor's office and the other kids dragged him against his will into the office and pushed him up super close to a real human skeleton, maybe even putting the phalanges on his face. At first he was terrified. But then the horror switched over to fascination. Could this have been that moment? The switch that turned on, if you will. That moment that we, all of us combined, want to know. Because after he began cutting up animals, first dead, then alive. So, since the 1970s, there has been research that consistently shows a correlation between cruelty to animals and later delinquency, violence, and criminal behavior. According to Psychology Today, nearly all violent crime perpetrators have a history of animal cruelty in their profiles. It goes without saying that most kids that abuse animals have witnessed or experienced abuse themselves. 30% of children who have witnessed domestic abuse act out in a similar fashion against their own pets. Some developmentally related motives that most likely apply to homes are curiosity or exploration, mood enhancement and rehearsal for interpersonal violence and like motivation there are also types of animal abusers the experimenter is usually aged one to six who are cognitively delayed and do not understand that animals can't be treated as toys but holmes was older than this he fits more into the cry for help abuser category which is usually ages 6 to 12. Children this age intellectually know that it is not okay to abuse animals. This age group who abuse animals are generally showing symptoms of a deeper psychological problem. So let's get back into his story. After marrying Clara, they had a son named Robert Mudgett. Side note, Robert went on to be a certified public accountant and served as city manager of Orlando, Florida. Holmes's bloodline is still very much alive today. But anyway, in 1880, when Holmes was 19 years old, he decided to enroll at the University of Michigan Medical School and he was accepted. The money that he had gotten from marrying Clara, who was rich, paid for his college. He packed up his family and he moved to Michigan. Now, Holmes was again a very successful student and he impressed his professors. He even began working as a sort of apprentice for one professor who happened to be the chief of anatomy of the school. With this rather coveted relationship, he had free access to corpses that were used for study at the school. And with this, Holmes began quietly taking the bodies with him to play with as he pleased, or he resorted to stealing bodies from morgues. He dissected and mutilated them until there was basically nothing left that he could do with the remains. He would then make up a fake name, buy a life insurance policy under that name, then report that that person had died. Since he had a body, the life insurance companies would pay and he did this several times. This was also the time that he began using the name HH Holmes or Henry Howard Holmes. It was also during this time that Clara packed herself and their son and moved back to New Hampshire, never to see her husband again, but they also never officially divorced. It was reported that he was physically abusive to Clara. Holmes graduated from medical school in 1884 and was an official M.D. With the insurance scams that he ran, he had money and now time, which he used to travel for a bit. He visited a few states, he would take on a job for a month or so, and then completely disappear. But he finally settled in Chicago in 1886 at the age of 25. He walked into a pharmacy owned by a Mrs. Elizabeth Holton and immediately loved it. As that part of Chicago was rapidly growing, Elizabeth had more customers and business than she could handle by herself. And Holmes charmed Elizabeth into immediately giving him a job there. Now, back in this time, a pharmacist or druggist was also a chemist, and most drugstores were full of, a, you know, elixirs and potions. And when Holmes would put together a quote, prescription, he would make the act a bit entertaining, though he really wasn't much of a chemist. But he was charming and polite and apparently quite humorous, and the customers loved him. Especially the women. Needless to say, it didn't take long for him to become the manager of the entire store. He was accepted into the local society. Life was good, but Holmes was not satisfied. Now, sources say Elizabeth and her husband, a doctor who had also graduated from the same college as Holmes, disappeared, but That's false news. The couple lived in that local area their entire lives and survived well past the turn of the century. They remained friends with Holmes until he left. Holmes had just simply bought the pharmacy from them. Holmes also had met a woman named Myrta Belknap and married her, though he was still technically married to Clara. The couple had a daughter they named Lucy Theodate Holmes, and she was born in July of 1889. Holmes at that point was 28 years old. And side note, Lucy went on to become a public school teacher. Two years later, Holmes bought a large lot across the street from the pharmacy, and construction immediately began. The plans were for a two-story with retail space on the bottom floor and apartments on the second. But interestingly, Holmes refused to pay the companies that provided the materials, such as the steel used, and they sued him. He did this whenever workers would start to become a little suspicious about why the walls, the rooms, and the hallways were set up the way that they were. But he was still able to convince investors to fund an additional third story so that he would have more rooms to rent for the upcoming and much anticipated World's Fair that was going to be held in Chicago. But that level was never completed fully. Holmes had stashed furniture and other material from the companies coming to repossess them due to non-payment. But where had he hid these items? In the hidden rooms and odd passageways built throughout the building. Some of the rooms were soundproofed, really most all of them were soundproofed, and the hallways were nearly like a maze, with corridors that led nowhere. And also, many of the rooms had these chutes that dropped straight down to the basement, which you would assume would be for laundry, but no. Holmes had containers of acid, bags of quicklime, as well as a crematorium down there. He also advertised that there were rooms for rent in his huge building when there really wasn't, at least on the third floor. People would come to stay at his quote, murder castle in the advertised hotel that was specifically designed so that he could capture people, torture them, murder them, and mutilate their bodies. Some rooms were airtight and he gassed his victims. One room was this huge vault with the, you know, bank vault type spinning handle and he would get people to go inside and then lock them in the vault and let them run out of air slowly and die. Holmes also had rooms built that were nowhere near big enough to be actual rooms. They were more like cubby holes that he could stash live victims or already dead bodies in. These cubbies were in the floors, in the walls, all over. And get this guys, he had a room that had iron plates in the walls with some kind of blow torches behind it. So he could trap a person inside this room, then turn the torches on and quite literally cook these people alive. He had a room where he could tie his victims arms and legs out away from them and then pull them apart. He had all manner of choices and how he wanted to torture and kill his victims and then sell bits of their remains for monetary gain. If you're interested in seeing the blueprints as well as drawings and maps of the inside of this murder castle, I recommend googling it. You won't be disappointed. It's crazy. Now Holmes and his second wife and daughter had a place just outside of the larger part of the city, but he had made most of the third floor his office and apartment where he spent most of his nights. He then began an affair with a married woman named Julia Smith. She her husband and their daughter happened to live in one of the decent hotel rooms on the second floor and her husband actually worked at a jewelry counter on the ground floor. Once her husband found out about their affair, he packed up and he left his family. Holmes then took out a very large life insurance policy on both Julia and her daughter. Then, around Christmas in 1891, she and her daughter disappeared. When asked, he stated that Julia had died during an abortion attempt and he sent her daughter to live with her father. And there were other women he had affairs with that went missing as well. Then in 1893, the World's Fair came to Chicago. It was to celebrate the 400th anniversary of Christopher Columbus's landing in the New World in 1892. It was this huge exposition that had a big impact on society and the local culture and it was a massive undertaking to put together between the architecture of the buildings and the pools being built to sanitation needs, the arts and American industrial optimism as a whole. It covered 690 acres, and the buildings were built in the neoclassical architecture with, you know, canals and lagoons. And it boasted visitors from 46 countries. So you know homes took advantage of the huge influx of visitors needing a room. Most, if not all, who never left that hotel once they entered. Now, while construction was going on in the murder castle, Holmes met a carpenter by the name of Benjamin Peitzel, who had a very shady past and the two became very close friends. The two worked on actually several different scams together and Peitzel was apparently Holmes's little lapdog, but it is thought that Benjamin was not actually aware of the murders. During this time, a not well-known actress named Minnie Williams decided to move to Chicago. He met her and quickly found out that she owned a very large amount of land in Fort Worth, Texas, so he hired her to work for him at the hotel. He found out that she had a sister whose name was also on the deed of that land, so he formulated a plan. He talked Minnie into signing the deed over to one of his false names. Then he and Minnie telling people that they were married, but I don't know if they actually did get married. Not that it would count because he was already married. The couple got an apartment in another part of Chicago and had Nanny, Minnie's sister, come visit them. And after visiting, Nanny wrote back to her family saying that she was going to go to Europe with, quote, Harry, and neither sister was ever seen again. So the insurance companies were beginning to get a little suspicious at the number of claims that Holmes was putting in for dead people leaving him their life insurance. And once he realized this, he took off and went down to the land that he got from many in Texas with another new wife. There, he began planning to build another murder castle and used the same scams that he had in Chicago to, in effect, get free labor and materials. And this was when he was actually arrested for the first time, but not for what you might think. It was for stealing horses. And while in jail, he thought up another scam to fake his own death with another prisoner. Once Holmes was bailed out and he began to get it all set up, the insurance companies, quite familiar with his name at this point, refused to work with him so he called upon his very best friend Benjamin Peitzel and he talked Benjamin into opening a life insurance policy under a false name and then faking his own death they agreed that Benjamin's wife would get ten thousand dollars which she would then split with Holmes and with this shady lawyer that they were working with but Holmes had other plans he rendered Benjamin unconscious with chloroform. Some sources say that he got Benjamin super drunk. But regardless, he became unconscious and then Holmes set him on fire. Then to top it all off, Holmes talked Benjamin's wife into allowing him to take three of their five children with him on this trip through the United States and into Canada. He had lied to Mrs. Peitzel saying Benjamin was hiding in London for the time being and he had no intention of actually giving her any of that money. So this is where it's going to get kind of confusing so so stay with me okay. Holmes took the three children and sort of stashed them in a house in whatever city the train stopped in. He would then travel back get Mrs. Peitzel and the two remaining children, travel with them, stash them in yet another house that was not in the same city or at least near the other house as the other three children, and he did this back and forth, telling Mrs. Peitzel that this was necessary to throw the insurance companies off of their trail. Now, Holmes didn't really have the patience to keep this up, so he murdered the three children, One of them he poisoned by overdosing the small boy with pills, then dismembered the boy and burned the remains. His teeth and part of his skull would be found in a house that Holmes had rented later. Then days later, he forced the two remaining girls into a box. He drilled a hole in it where he inserted a tube and he gassed them to death. He then buried their bodies beneath the floor of a house that he had rented in Canada. So it was around this time that a Philadelphia investigator by the name of Frank Geyer was assigned to look into Holmes and the missing children. He looked into properties that Holmes owned and had recently rented where Frank found the decomposing bodies of the two girls and they were naked which kind of made them think that it might have been sexually motivated, but we just aren't sure. They then found what little remains were left of the boy in the other house. Now the actual Pinkertons were hired on to help track Holmes down and he was found and arrested on November 17, 1894. He was put on trial for the murder of Benjamin Peitzel and the three children. But he then confessed to murdering a further 27 people in Chicago, Indianapolis, and Toronto, as well as six attempted murders. But it is thought that his number is much, much higher. When asked why he killed these people, he said that he was actually innocent. Then he said he was possessed by Satan. He said, quote, I was born with the devil in me. I could not help the fact that I was a murderer no more than a poet can help the inspiration to sing. I was born with the evil one standing as my sponsor beside the bed where I was ushered into the world and he has been with me since." Unquote. He was hung on May 7, 1896 in the Philadelphia County Prison. But the fall didn't break his neck, so he died from being strangled, and it actually took him 15 minutes to die, and he was twitching, and it was... ugh. But they said he showed no fear, and actually was said to be completely calm up until he was executed. Holmes requested that he be buried 10 feet deep, and that his casket be encased in concrete, so that no one could rob his grave because he was afraid that someone would dissect his body. Ridiculous, I know. So, in my opinion, this case shows a connection between childhood abuse and violent crimes. Physical and emotional abuse are well known to cause issues with brain development, but that doesn't really explain all of the fraud that he committed. He was born into an affluent family and legitimately got a degree to practice medicine. He was highly intelligent and would have been successful enough to make plenty of his own money. And the work he put into these scams would have been much higher than working for his own wage. So why the deviance? I think it goes full circle back to the callousness he was shown as a child and the bullying and that moment when those kids pushed him right up against that skeleton. But I also believe he had to have been born with his, quote, wiring a little different. But what do you think? Leave me a comment on Instagram at serial underscore killing or YouTube under the same name of this podcast. You can visit my website at serialkilling.squarespace.com and also consider sponsoring the podcast through Patreon. It takes a lot of hours and a lot of work to gather this, but I love it. And thank you so much for listening. I appreciate each and every one of you, as I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me. Thanks and have a great day. Music by Kevin MacLeod on Incompetech.com.